A really warm welcome to episode 45 of Purposely Podcast with Simplicity founder Sam Stubbs. Sam is the ultimate disruptor who's taken on the finance industry. Enjoy. Stay in purgatory forever? Well, I just, I choose not to do that, right? I'm a, I'm a Westie, I'm a working class kid and um, I want to make life better for um people like me who grew up in families like me and and you know and we're just going to do it and i don't really care what anyone thinks about that agitating for change which would benefit long-term investors in the company so those are they're not about short-term profit announcements they're things like um diversity and governance or diversity of hiring, it's about executive pay, it's about long-term environmental and financial sustainability. You know, the, the stuff which tends to be beyond the bonus terms of the current CEO, but is very, very important for long-term shareholders like ourselves. Purpose D Podcast. Speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Sam Stubbs, welcome to Purpose Your Podcast. G'day. For our international guest or audience, can you explain what Simplicity is and what yeah. their vision and mission is? Yeah, sure. So um, we're a non-profit fund manager. So if you're overseas, you might, uh, might have heard of Vanguard. And so calling us the vanguard of New Zealand wouldn't be too far wrong. Basically, what we do is we're a company, our why, how, what is, our why is to give people dignity in retirement. And how we do that is we give them choices, you know, because people who have choices in life have dignity. And how we give people choices is, and what we do is we make them richer. So we run as a nonprofit fund manager, which charges the lowest fees. And um, uh, and that's how we make people richer. And in the process too, because we're a, a charity. I mean, we're a social enterprise, a charity, a non-profit, a whole lot of things. But regardless of that, what we do with the fees that we do charge, which are the lowest, we give 15% of them to charity. So um, we've been running for almost five years now. Uh, we manage about $3 billion on behalf of over 60,000 members. And we're giving away about $100,000 a month to charity and making extremely good returns too. So yeah, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. Or the New Zealand government woke up to the idea that New Zealanders owed more than they had saved, and that was going to be a huge risk for New Zealand in the future. So, designed this incentivized um, saving scheme in the early 2000s, and it didn't get introduced no. until, or how to remind me of yeah. the history. So, it's about, oh gosh, 14 years old now. And um, yeah, it was started out, um, and they didn't think it was going to be that popular to start off with, but it turned out to be wildly popular because the government gave everyone who joined $1,000 in their account. So, um, the, you know, the vast majority of the population now have signed up. It's a voluntary, you know, pension scheme, but it's, you really are incentivized to save by the government. And so in the first 14 years, it's accumulated almost $80 billion, um, which for New Zealand is a lot of money and uh, will carry on um, growing and growing. And we're sort of, Gosh, 20 years behind Australia in terms of doing this or the UK or the US or 
any one of the big developed OECD countries that have got pension schemes, but we're, we're, we're playing catch up now and we're catching up in a reasonable hurry. Yeah, so the, the kind of carrot dangling is uh, contribution from employers, like you said, the early government um, uh, carrot, and also people can gain access to their funds a bit earlier than retirement, not all, but yeah. some. Yeah, they can. Well, actually, they can take out almost everything if they want to buy their first home. So um, lots of people do that. So they use it as a first home savings scheme because the fees tend to be lower, or it depends on the scheme you're in, but they can be a lot lower. And it's a nice diversified way of saving. Um, and then they use that to buy their first home. It happens all the time. And I've been to your offices, and what astounded yeah. me was how small your team was. You know, you, you've just given us the numbers there. Um, yeah. How small the team is, but also how lean you run. Um, and that was always the model, right? Yeah. So, look, you know, we, we, have, we have what we call a, a sort of a starvation mentality here, right? So we never get used to having very much money because as soon as we are in danger of making uh, money, we lower our fees. So we keep on, uh, you know, we, we keep it pretty tight. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, we, we go stupid with it, but it does mean that we have um, a really heavy emphasis on technology. So we spend a, a lot of money on that to automate as much as we can. We have 63 volunteers as well, people like lawyers, PR, accountants, a whole bunch of people who help us out because we're disrupting the financial services industry here. And also, you know, we're giving, giving so much to charity. I think we've given away over 2 million in our first uh, five years now, and it's increasing really quickly now. So, um, uh, yeah, so we, 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 we run a very unusual model in the financial industry, but not at all unusual if you, you know, really want to make people rich and, um, you know, um, enroll volunteers in as well. So, um, and we'll, we'll carry on doing that. And, and it's fun, you know, it, it's, it's, everyone here works for a purpose. Everyone gets paid a fair salary. No one's going to get rich here. There's no such things as bonuses or, you know, very high salaries. But everyone gets a fair amount, but they get a tremendous sense of working for something which is making a difference. Yeah. Every, every single day now, we are saving our members about $50,000 in fees every day. Um, and then putting about $3,500 to charity. And it just keeps on going up every day. That's a great reason to come into work every day. Yes, absolutely. And um, I just keep thinking Sam Stubbs, poacher turned gamekeeper, but that's not quite yeah. right. Tell, tell, tell us about your <laughs> past yeah. and, and you yeah. know, your insights. Yeah, well, look, I was really a gamekeeper turned poacher. So um, I'm a West Auckland boy. So for those overseas that come from the sort of, you know, wrong side of the tracks. So fairly, fairly poor suburb. And um, uh, but I had a really lucky life because I chose my parents well, you know, that line by Churchill if you make one decision in life choose your parents well well both of them were school teachers <laughs> you know so they're both school teachers so they imbibed me with a sort of sort of values I had a very lucky career and went overseas and worked for investment banks and all that sort of stuff but by the time I got to about 46 I was looking in the mirror and not really liking the person that I saw I was making myself richer but really not enriching the lives of the people where I came from. So I basically decided to um, uh, effectively work for charity. And, you know, um, I had a good old fashioned midlife crisis and um, decided that the rest of my life was gonna be looking after other people, not myself. And uh, I went and planted trees for a year uh, on an island doing other little charity work. And then I decided, look, this, I was a laborer. How could we make a big scalable difference? You know, thinking like a, thinking like a business person, I guess. And, um, 
got together three mates in a pub with a blank sheet of paper and we said how can we make the biggest difference and simplicity was what we drew on that piece of paper and it's exactly what we've done um so um we i'm a sort of a a gamekeeper turned poacher and pretty much everyone in this organization is they're all pretty much from the finance industry they're experienced people they just want to coalesce around an idea or a vision to change the industry and to make you know new zealanders a lot healthier which is just starting to happen but you know we're very early early on in our life cycle we call ourselves an infinite company you know we fully intend to be around forever and uh, we structured ourselves that way you know because we don't make any money that means we're not worth any money if we're not worth any money we'll never be bought or sold so we're deliberately designed to be around forever and so we're only five years in you know we're just we're, we're babies we're just infants so we've got a long way to go but we've got a lot of time in which we can get it right so yeah, yeah. so and, wonderful yeah yeah and those those two co-founders if you like are they still involved yeah, so there was uh, there's four of us, and they're all involved. Yeah, and you talked about simplicity being disturbing the market, um, and I follow you on social media, and and uh, you you're also um, a disturber, and I see you constantly shining a light on high fees, um, what you perceive, and and quite rightly so, uh, people being ripped off, but very bluntly. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And is that like a just give me an idea of the discipline of that? Because you know, the thought you go into doing it. And then yeah. how do you like is, do you get a, a, emotional with it? Are you quite <laughs> is yeah. that strategic? Yeah, no, no, it's a it's a good good question. Emotions versus strategy. Look, I think it's both, right? So, you know, I wouldn't be doing this job and, and we all of us at Simplicity wouldn't be doing it unless we're a bit emotional about our industry, right? So um, I think that the finance industry treats most people like they're idiots and um, uh, sort of thrives on apathy and ignorance. And so we emotionally want to make sure that people are informed and, you know, treated like the intelligent people they are. So that's the emotion bit of it. Part of it is strategic too, of course, because we want to change people's behaviours. You know, we're one of the very unusual businesses where we would say our ultimate definition of success is to be driven out of business. By that we mean that if all of our competitors had such low fees and such great social conscience and such great charitable contributions, if we ceased to be competitive, we would have succeeded. So, um, uh, so in that sense, in trying to get everyone else to behave that way uh, and to get proper competition there, yeah, we have to be strategic about the fights that we pick, for sure. Um, but the, 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 the under, the, it's very easy to do that. It's very simple. There's not a lot of thinking involved because you just have this moral compass is what is happening right or wrong. And if it's obviously wrong, then we'll, we'll shout out, shout out about it. And, um, you know, the finance industry is not famous for having um, uh, participants calling each other out because it's such a profitable industry that there's almost like this gentle person's agreement that you don't, you know, rock the boat too much because it's all too good for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think that's BS. I think that um, it's it's very comfortable for people in the finance industry because the people outside of the industry are paying them so much. Well, that's just wrong, you know. So, um, and, and I realise, look, I'm unpopular in the finance industry sometimes because people say, listen, well, he, you know, he made his fortune and now he, you know, now, now he's being sort of, you know, holier than now. Um, mm. But you know what, you know, I don't know, um, bad things happen when good people do nothing, right? So, What's the option? Just, you know, 
stay in purgatory forever. Well, I just I choose not to do that, right? I'm a I'm a Westie. I'm a working class kid, and um, I want to make life better for um, people like me who grew up in families like me. And and you know, and we're just going to do it. And I don't really care what anyone thinks about that. That's what we're going to do. And does that play out to being ostracized from the sort of industry? So I'm never invited to any of these things and I'd consider it a mark of failure if I was invited. Um, <laughs> you know, like if I was considered, you know, it's almost like that Groucho Marx, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me, right? So, so um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, we, we very, very deliberately sit outside there and, and you know, shout, shout from the outside. But, you know, it's interesting. A lot of this advocacy we do is as shareholders. We're, you know, getting to be some sizable shareholders in New Zealand companies now. So um, we go into the boardroom and start agitating for change, which would benefit long-term investors in the company. So those are, they're not about short-term profit announcements. They're things like um, diversity and governance or diversity of hiring. It's about executive pay. It's about long-term environmental and financial sustainability. You know, the, the stuff which tends to be beyond the bonus terms of the current CEO, but is very, very important for long-term shareholders like ourselves. So we've got a really important role to play there as well. And we tend to be a bit shoutier and a bit noisier than a bunch of our, our other competitors, um, uh, particularly, you know, um, stockbroking um, you know, houses who want to get the latest uh, capital raising from the company so they don't annoy anybody or the bank-owned fund managers who don't want to annoy any of their clients either. So, um, you know, we, we, we have a role there and there's a role for somebody like us, for sure. And taking you back to your childhood, so you touched on being a Westie, which... Um, and, and also, I've read somewhere that actually you're quite entrepreneurial as a young person. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us about your first thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. Well, we you know, sort of, you know, where I was coming from, sort of pocket money didn't exist, so you had to go and find it yourself. And um, <clears throat> I had a friend, uh, Eddie, and he and I used to do what we call scrounging, which was um, we used to get in our bikes and go around the jumbo bins of the industri light industrial parks in our area and sort of you know find things to to sell so i had a great gig going at school and and used sellotape there for a while their sellotape factory would you know throw out old rolls of sellotape that were sort of where a quarter of it wasn't sticky so i'd trade those the first money serious money we made was um <clears throat> we just back then the post office used to own all the telephones and there was a repair shop um in henderson and we used to go up to them as 11 year old kids these guys thought we were pretty cute we used to go through their jumbo bin for spare parts of telephones and every now and again we'd go and ask them for a new part which they'd give give us to us because they thought it was amusing and back in those days the post office would only allow one telephone per house and they were those rotary dial telephones and so we ran this basically illegal extension um installing service so we would install you know multiple phones in your house and uh, made out of spare parts that we found in the jumbo bin. So the, um, and we charge you, gosh, I'm forgetting, I think we charged you 10 bucks if we liked you and $20 if we didn't. And, uh, <laughs> and we had, uh, we had a great little gig going with some houses had 11 phones. 
uh, in them. Uh, I think Eddie's did himself. So, so that was a you know, and and that sort of you know that that basic stuff, that basic entrepreneurialism, you know, you can do it, make it happen, was was cool. Yeah. Was so, really and cool. that to late, um, later life, you headed overseas, and you yep. ended up in um, in, in the finance investment bank around stockbroker in London. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I got, I sort of found my way into Goldman Sachs, which was, you know, a pretty big firm uh, in those days. It was the, you know, the biggest, most glamorous firm. And I sort of had the high life, you know, had some crazy, crazy experiences there. This little working class kid. And I sort of thought I'd, you know, I thought I'd found a seam of gold there and, and had a wonderful time, really. But then um, went to Hong Kong with them as well and had another four years there. And after, at, at that time, then I really wanted to come home with my kids. Uh, and uh, and I started started to feel less than satisfied at just getting richer and richer and richer, playing the same old games, maximizing margins, making more profits, selling things which were really unnecessary and unneeded. So that started gnawing at me, and it took me a few years of that when I just got sick of it, and I said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. So, yeah, and, and look, I've never looked back. I just wish I'd done it, you know, 10 years earlier. Yeah, how old were your kids when, they came, when you came back? Oh, they were young, so they were. Mm. They would have been uh, about two and four um, mm. when they came back. So yeah, a typical New Zealand story, right? Go and do the OE, you know, have a family overseas, come back with for the kids and and the family, and then you know find your feet here. But yeah. um, and I had a few false starts and in, 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 in areas that I was in. But you know, now I've landed on my feet, and hopefully this will be the last job I ever had. Did you find coming home difficult at first? Um, no, I found it bloody wonderful, actually. <laughs> um, you know, you make a bit of money overseas, and you come to New Zealand, you can buy a fancy house and, you know, nice, you know, possessions, and then you have time. I wasn't working for the first year when I came back. No, I really enjoyed it. Uh, ended up, you know, re renovating a house or whatever. I think a bunch of people come back and say, it's not London, it's not New York, there aren't as many jobs, all those sorts of things. I think everyone goes through their own personal journey there. Um, but what I find interesting is that all of all my friends that have done it, pretty much all of them have done it, is they all find, they all land on their feet one way or the other. You know, New Zealand's a big enough country with enough interesting stuff that as long as you're open-minded, hardworking and positive, you know, you'll find something useful and interesting to do. Um, and, and sure enough, that's happened. Do you, overseas, did you identify as a proud chess-beating Kiwi or did, you know, what's your relationship with national nationalism yeah, yeah look, it, it's pretty hard not to be when you've got an accent like mine right so everyone pigeonholes you i mean i think you know look i've lived in a few cities overseas i think the the being in new zealand is just a massive advantage because you are completely unpigeonholable you know over there so when you're in england or america you've got this cute accent and we used to hang around with you know the aristocracy all the way down to you know the barrow boys you know, we were completely socially mobile. And it was the same in New York, uh, too, in, in America, where, you know, these are immigrant cities and everyone's open-minded. And, and and so I think, I think and, and being a Kiwi is really interesting because you're just quite a likable, positive person generally. People like being around you and people generally have very positive things, you know, to say and think about New Zealand. So, no, I think it's a, you know, I was a, a proud Kiwi for sure. Um, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ramming it down people's throats, but um, I was certainly in, 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 in enjoying the freedom, yeah. Yeah. And you're, like, if you think of New Zealand, I'm a tall poppy syndrome, and yeah. 
being being sort of um low beat as, in many ways i yeah, think yeah, yeah. um you're not typical of that so but you're you know but still you're your own type of new yeah. zealander right yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'm not i'm 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 not tall poppy in terms of uh in terms of money i mean i don't you know i don't however how much money you have and how much money i have really means nothing to me um you know it's the quality of the character that matters but uh you know i'm pretty shouty i guess eh, in terms of advocacy and getting in social media and beating the drums but that's um uh you know that's just in in my nature and um you know love talking i mean i had a very terrible stutter when i was a kid so i couldn't talk for a very long time so maybe i'm playing catch up now um but um yeah, it's interesting, New Zealanders, eh? They're so um, self-effacing and uh, yeah. I just like a little bit more vim in them, you know? A little yeah. bit more aggression would go a long way. Just a little, not a lot. I don't want as much as the Aussies, but yeah. I'd like a, a little bit more, yeah. Yeah, because I've been you know, overseas myself for 25 years in the UK and got, got there, you're too relaxed a few times. Uh, that was as a charge of my character. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> You're a so you've you've effectively created I created this charity. You talked about it before, and you know you've over two million dollars has dropped in from Simplicity. Yeah, I just want to explore like being uh, involved in a charity, donating money. What what's that journey been like? Has it surprised you how hard it is to make a difference? Um, uh, is there things that have surprised you? Oh yeah, look, you know, two million dollars is a drop in the ocean, right? And and look, it's 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 rapidly growing. So it's over one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a month now. So so it's going to start to become a reasonable amount of money. It's very hard to make a difference, right? Because really, making a difference means you want to give a lot of money over a long period of time, and we don't have either a lot of money or haven't been doing it for a long period of time. So we've only just started, but you know, um, we call ourselves the infinite company and we'll be an infinite charity as well. If we carry on going here, well, we're going to be able to take on these, you know, some very long-term projects. And I'm quite keen on doing that. Um, but look, we have people smarter than me in charge of handing the money out. It's, um, it's, uh, and, and they vet all these charities. And look, initially it was hilarious. They would just give it to anyone who asked because no one had heard of us. So if you just ask for money, you got some. Now they've kind of got used to that. Now the words out, so we have way more applications than we have ability to fund. But I tell you, the other interesting thing about that is the fifteen percent of charity really brings a cost discipline into our business, and it also brings a hell of a lot of volunteers. So this is one of these things where people think that if you're a charity, that's not a commercial thing to do. It, it absolutely is. So um, we receive way more in volunteer labour than. Uh, uh, in terms of the value of the volunteer labour we get is well in excess of what we're giving away in charitable donations, right? So if we weren't a charity and if we just spent that money on buying services, we would be worse off. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, you can be a charity and social enterprise and that can be a very smart commercial thing to do. And it's also, of course, it's a massive competitive differentiator for us, right? So, you know, we, we have this, we have this literally have a bowl in the middle of our of our room, a meeting room here, and I call it the begging bowl, simplicity begging bowl. And we just say, look, we're a nonprofit. So, you know, we ask for discounts on absolutely everything and, and by and large, get them. Um, right. yeah. so, so, so as long as you're not interested in, in lining your own pockets or your shareholders, you know, you can run a, 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 in, in a capital light industry, right? So one that doesn't need a lot of buildings or machines or anything like that. If you're just paying to develop software or, you know, you've got a, a tech-based business like us, you've got a massive competitive advantage as a social enterprise. 
people haven't realized that yet, but I think you're going to find that some of the most aggressive commercial players in a whole bunch of industries are actually going to be social enterprises. And, uh, and if, you don't, if you don't believe me, look at Southern Cross here in New Zealand, 75% of the healthcare insurance market, 75 years later, how do they so dominate? It's because they don't need to make money. Mm. You know? Yeah, all that pressure. And yeah. how have you found New Zealand's had a pretty good time of it in terms of the effects of COVID and we've had limited yeah. lockdowns or quite full. Yeah. How did you find how did you find it personally? And did you have like panic about simplicity in that yeah. early stages? Yeah. Uh no. I mean, this is my fifth financial meltdown. So, you know, kind of felt like I'd seen it all before and it was going to blow over. The, the trick was getting members to understand that. So an awful lot of, you know, video calls and seminars, online seminars and all that sort of thing. I found the lockdown process perfectly fine, you know, personally. Um, I think the um, it's been a bit of a distraction. What most New Zealanders don't realise that we're about to enter a period of prosperity like I think we've never seen in our history because um, we're now saving so much money and that is going to be reinvested in New Zealand. If you look at the Australian story of 20 years ago when they started doing this, Actually, 30 years ago, they started. And, you know, Australia didn't have a recession for 26 years in a row, in spite of the fact that it was a heavy commodity country, right? Depended a lot on the price of iron ore and whatever. And that was because an ever-growing pool of pension funds were getting invested in the local economy and keeping businesses ticking along, even when the price of iron ore went down. And we're just starting to see that in New Zealand now. I can see evidence of it all over the place, actually. So oh. mm-hmm. I, th- I think the next 20 years are going to be a fantastic time to be living in New Zealand. Yeah. And in terms of um, like good things that came out, have come out of the, like on the micro level, and it, mm-hmm. there's been a, a whole lot of disturbance, hasn't there? And, and sort of mental health as well, uh, yep. so certainly globally. But do you see positives? Oh, yeah. Heaps of positives. I mean, look, the, the, every cloud has a silver lining, right? So, you know, it, it's pretty obvious what the negatives are. But you think about this, for example, the whole working population of New Zealand has had a serious rethink about their work-life balance and about can they work from home? Is it effective to work from home? Do they want to do it? That's a huge reset in a very short period of time, or at least it's a, it's a good look at what the options are. And it's actually experiencing a completely different way of working for a whole lot of people. So that's good. Because people will just make some more balanced and sensible decisions about how they want their work life structured. So I'll give you an example here, right? We've always had a very flexible work environment. But we just decided post-COVID, bugger it, just come into the office when you feel like it. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, we, you know, we, we, we really don't care. And, mm. um, and, and so, so I think that's, that's, that's uh, you know, one huge silver lining. The other thing, too, is, of course, is that for New Zealand, what COVID has done is, is it's moved... New Zealand up two notches in global estimation. So you just wait and see what happens when the borders open. You wait and see what sort of immigrants we're going to get down here. You wait and see how many businesses will be relocating down here. You know, when you get uh, such good press as we have, I mean, it would have been inconceivable um, 10 years ago that a New Zealand prime minister would be considered the world's most admired leader, which I think yeah. is just happened. Happened this week, didn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Now, that, those sort of things for a little country far away really, really matter. And, and it's not immediately obvious, but long-term it absolutely is. So, you know, John Key always had this thing, he wanted New Zealand to be the Switzerland of the South Pacific. I think that's actually starting to come true. And, and that's going to be, there's going to be some downsides for that, for sure. 
but overall that's going to be a very positive experience on that note absolute pleasure to catch up with you and a really big thank you for joining purposely uh, oh, really enjoy, really enjoyed it and um yeah. I, I know you you and i will stay connected yeah absolutely great chat thank you very much thank you sir see you later thanks for listening to purposely podcast i hope you like what you're hearing please subscribe and leave a review Thank you.